0: Okay, let's get everybody inside. We'll get started right on time. Thanks for coming out for session number two, and we'll get somebody to shut those doors back there and we'll get started. And I hope you understand what class you're in. This is from the beginning to the end. Now I got to tell you, I told you last week that this is a, a warp speed travel from Genesis to Revelation. I'm going to cover 31 topics in 13 weeks. Let's pray. Father, we commit tonight to Your Word so that we might understand Your Word. So, we ask Your blessing upon our time together. Open our minds to understand the Scriptures, because to understand the Scripture is to know You. To know You is to know life itself. So, Lord, we ask Your Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us as we enter into this time of study. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hang on. Here we go. Tonight, it'll be chapter number four of the 31. It's called The Deliverance. Be careful when you say, I could never. I think it just makes God laugh. And be careful when you say, I would never. Just don't do it. God might just call you to do the very thing that you're sure you would never, ever have to do in your life. So, have you ever noticed a particular method of God? He seems to choose the most unlikely people to do some of the most incredible things. I mean, Abraham, Moses, he picks the most unlikely people. Now I've got—this is kind of personal to me. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 1.27. Before I read it, I need to tell you that. When I made the decision to leave the business world and go into the ministry, this became my theme verse. Um, God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, the weak to shame the strong that no one would ever boast in his presence. And here's why I say that. I've never been to Bible college, never went to seminary, never did any of those things that everybody with resumes to go into ministry do. And I did none of them, and yet I felt very convinced that God was calling me. To preach, God was calling me into a ministry, and so when I read this tonight, um, it's very personal for me, and and it should be personal for everybody. What it really means is no one is unqualified; everybody's qualified. If you're breathing air, you're qualified. Now, when you stop breathing air, it's okay. You can lay down a while. You're not going to make it. Let me read this in the NIV. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world. Think about those fishermen that He's calling on the Sea of Galilee with all of those educated Pharisees in Jerusalem. Who's He called? These fishermen out of the Sea of Galilee. Think this is how He operates. He chose the lowly things of this world And the despised things of this world, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. And why? Why why is that his methodology? So that no one may boast before him. You see, in my situation, just personally, I'm never going to ever be able to say, it's because of my Bible college degree. It's because of that seminary teacher. I'm never going to be able to say that. Because why? Because I didn't have any of that. I know what it's because. It's because of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's because when God chooses, and He's looking for anybody and everybody, it's not got anything to do with me. That's just my story. You've got a story too. Everybody's qualified. So here we go in the story. God had already told the original Hebrew abraham about the detail of this upper story plan so as we start tonight two things i want you to understand this entire 13 weeks is going to reveal that god's got this upper story thing that's what his plan is in heaven he plays out the upper story in the lower story so his upper heavenly story He actually controls what happens down in the lower story on the earth. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. To understand history, biblical history, you've got to come to—you've got to understand this foundation. Abraham is the first Jew. He's the first Hebrew. He's the first of the called-out children of God. It begins with him. There's nobody before him. All right? It's him. He becomes the father of the children called the children of God. Um, In fact, the word Jew isn't used anywhere around Abraham, because that word came from Judah, one of the sons of Jacob that happens way later. And even then, they didn't call them Jews until somewhere around the book of Esther. You'll start hearing them referred to as the Jewish people. And that's because they're down in Judah. So. As we go through the story, when I I bring up Abraham, it's the beginning. It's the beginning of a group of people that he's calling out, making them the chosen people through which he's going to create a, a, I like to call it a supernatural race of people called the children of God. They're the children of God. So he's already uh, given the details to Abraham, Genesis 15, 13. The Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own. And they will be enslaved in that country for 400 years. Now bear in mind that this announcement of God came to Abram. Abram's name will be changed to Abraham. It comes to Abram before he ever had any children. Now how crazy is this announcement? He says, you're going to have kids, and they're going to live in another land, and they're going to be slaves in the other land for 400 years. And by the way, Abraham says, I don't even have any children. I don't even have one. So how are you going to do all this when I don't have any? God's already announced it. There are no Jewish people. There are no Hebrews. And even though there are no Jewish people, there are no Hebrews, he's already determined that 400 years from now, that in the future, they're going to, they're going to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Does that tell you anything about the sovereignty and control of God? If you ever wonder if God is in absolute control or not, read this about the Exodus from Egypt. What's Exodus mean? The coming out. So, when you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus number, Exodus is their coming out of Egypt. The word Exodus is to leave, to depart from, Exodus 1240, now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. So let me ask you a question. Did you notice that some of you real smart people did? He told Abraham years before that your children will be slaves in egypt for 400 years now in exodus it says 430 years to the day can you guess what the 30-year difference is did god make a mistake somebody up there didn't read the fine print they weren't always slaves in egypt The first 30 years they were in Egypt when Joseph was in charge and the prime minister, do you think they were slaves? What's the prophecy to Abraham? What does he say? Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. Well they weren't slaves and mistreated while Joseph was the prime minister, right? We have no specific record in the scripture that God spoke, or that he smoked either. (laughs) 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 We have no specific record in the scriptures that God spoke or communicated with any of the Hebrews from the time of Joseph to the time of Moses. Now, now, I'm not saying he didn't. It's not recorded that from the time of Joseph uh, to the time of Moses— There's nothing recorded that happened. So how does God- so you've got this 400-year gap between Joseph has come into Egypt, he's called his daddy, uh, Jacob, and his brothers come over to Egypt because the famine's coming, you're going to need to live here, and and 66, I believe there's 66 of them in all that come to Egypt, and it's the beginning of the, the Hebrews, the Jewish people moving into Egypt. Now for 400 years goes by, and we don't know of any communication between God and anybody in that time, except you know one thing. <laughs> they know how to make babies, okay? They know how to make babies. Because can you, you remember the story? Why is Pharaoh wanting to throw Moses and all the babies in the Nile River? Why, why is he wanting to have uh, after birth abortion? Why? why because they're going to outnumber us these these 66 people that have moved have moved into egypt under joseph are having so many children that 400 years later pharaoh can count and very soon they're going to outnumber us because they're having so many children so, I'll just tell you, by the time Moses comes, the math tells us that there's, that 66 has become two million. Two million. I told you, they know how to make babies. So how does God introduce himself to Moses, who's been raised in Egypt, and then the situation he had to flee Egypt, he's now in Midian for 40 years. How's God going to introduce himself after 400 years of, perhaps 400 years of silence from Joseph and Jacob and his brothers coming to Egypt because they're going to starve if they don't, and now Moses is going to hear a word from God? 400 years, and then this happens, Exodus 3, verse 5, and they're at the burning bush. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing. Is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father. I want you to notice something. How does God introduce himself? He could have introduced himself in a million ways, but how does he introduce himself to Moses? I'm the God of your father. I'm I'm one of those that headed up the Jewish people, okay? I'm the God of the first Jew. I'm trying to be clear so you'll get this point. I'm the God of the first Hebrew, Abraham. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham. And now he's going to list the, because Abraham's got a fork in the tree. You may listen. Ishmael is a fork in the tree. So he needs to clarify, not just Abraham. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. So that clarifies it's not going to go over on the Ishmael side and the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. How was God going to introduce? uh, How was Moses? So, that's how God introduces himself to Moses. So now Moses has got a problem. God has told Moses, I want you to go into Egypt and introduce me to them. I've introduced myself to you as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's been 400 years. Will the people in Egypt even know who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are? Because, you know, they're long gone, right? So how's he going to introduce God to the Hebrews in Egypt? And just doing some rough math, 565 years after Abraham and 400 years after Joseph. They've grown from 66 people to 2 million people. And here, Moses, go tell them who I am. So Moses knows he's got a problem. Um, Exodus 3.13. So Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. The God of your fathers, because that's how God introduces himself, right? I'm the God of your father. So I'm going to go to Egypt and say, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they asked me, what's his name? (laughs) Then what what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, The God of your fathers. You see, he keeps making this point, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham. He wants to make it clear that they understand the genealogical record of his name. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Let me just throw something personal in. When I'm praying, lots of times privately, I will say, I pray, I I acknowledge you. You are the God of Abraham. You are the God of Isaac. You are the God of Jacob. It is His name forever. He will forever be known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is His name forever. It is important. So, God's identity is in his people. Do you see it? It's in his people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Why does he make such a big deal about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? It's the announcement, are you ready, of a father-son relationship. Abraham, my son. Isaac, my son. Jacob, my son. I am your father. That sounded like Darth Vader there for a minute. <laughs> oh, I'm not doing that again. So I am. I am. In Hebrew, you know what I am is in Hebrew, Yahweh, Yahweh, the self-existent one. I am the self-existent one. And let me say this, I am is right on time. He is right exactly on time. Do you think it's just amazing that 430 years to the day, to the day, Moses takes two million people, pulls up and walks out of Egypt? More than 500 years after God told Abraham they would spend 400 years in bondage in a foreign land. And 430 years to the day that Joseph begins, they leave. Do you think God's able to keep a schedule? You think he has the divine power? He uses the 10 plagues of Egypt exactly to carry out an exact plan. God is sovereign. And this is one of those interesting points about the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign and he hardens Pharaoh's heart through all of these plagues, in order to reveal himself, not only to the Israelites. Let's be honest. The Israelites living in Egypt in that time didn't really know much about God. They didn't know much. So God is going to use these plagues and Moses to reveal himself to the Israelites. But he's also going to do something else that broadens the scene. Are you ready? He's going to reveal himself to Egypt. Egypt is the power of the world in that day. And God is going to use these plagues and Moses to reveal his identity, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not just to the Jewish people, not just to the Israelites, the Hebrews. The Egyptians are going to find out the hard way who he is. Romans, let's jump. Now, we're jumping into the New Testament. It says, for the Scriptures says that Pharaoh— says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. The reason, Romans 9.17 in the New Testament says that Pharaoh was born by God's sovereign purpose to say no to Moses. That's a theological issue. He was born for God's design to say no to Moses. And every time he said no to Moses in those 10 plagues, God would reveal a different part of himself, not only to Israel, but he would reveal a different part of himself to the Egyptians as well. Abraham and the call to sacrifice his son Isaac was a preview of the coming Messiah your only son, and we've touched on that already. Uh, in Genesis, it was the woman's seed will crush the serpent's head. In Abraham's story, it's Mount Moriah and your son, your own, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And God reveals his name, Yahweh Yerah, on the mountain of the Lord it will, <clears throat> it will be provided. <clears throat> so here we go to Moses. In Genesis, listen, here's the big point. The woman's seed will crush the serpent's head. In Abraham, your only son. In Moses, Moses and the final plague. In every one of these, Messiah, Messiah. Messiah, Do you see it? The woman's seed in Genesis 3. In Abraham's story, the, your only son, your only son is going to go to Moriah. Your only son is going to go to Moriah. The only son of God, Jesus, goes to Moriah. 2,000 years after Abraham. Do you see it? The Bible is declaring in the Old Testament, in Genesis, and in the Abraham story, Messiah. Messiah. So what about Moses? So that's, that's Adam and Eve, and, and, and now you got Abraham. What about Moses? The final plague. Now, now, it's more than the final plague. I could give you a bunch, but the big grand finale is the final plague would be another preview of the coming of Messiah. The sacrifice of the one and only son through the Passover, the woman's seed of Genesis, the only son of Abraham on Mount Moriah, now becomes the lamb's blood over the door in Egypt in the last plague. Why is there blood over the door in the last plague? Why? Because death's coming. And you can only escape the death of God's wrath in Egypt by the blood of the Lamb, the Passover. Exodus 12, 29. Before I read it, do you see it? I make a big deal out of this because I have said in the beginning, every one of all the Old Testament reveals Messiah. He's in there. You just got to know where he's at. In Genesis, he's the woman's seed that crushes the serpent head. In Abraham, he's the the, your only son on Mount Moriah. And now he's the Passover lamb when death comes to take its vengeance. Verse 21. By the way, it's the final plague. What's the next to the last plague? Darkness. After the darkness covered the land? This comes. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb." Let me ask you, how many Passovers had they celebrated before this? Zero. There were no Passovers. This is it. This is when Passover begins. This is the Passover. This is its original, select an animal for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and and on both sides of the door frame of- and he's talking about their house. Not one of you shall go out the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians. He will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frames and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house or strike you down. Do you see it? Messiah in Genesis. Messiah with Abraham on Mount Moriah. Messiah. Messiah. Look at that last sentence. Messiah will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. What? what? The blood of the Passover lamb. We began the story in week one with Adam, sin, and death. In the lower story, in this lower story scene, we see Egypt as a picture of the world full of sin and slavery, struggling to keep God's people in bondage for 400 years. Before I can continue, you got to be able to see this scene. In the lower story where all people live, there's a spiritual war taking place. Egypt is that spiritual Um, template. They are that spiritual picture. Sin is bondage. Sin is slavery. These, These two million Jewish people that God claimed to be His children are in slavery, in bondage for 400 years. So He sends a deliverer to get them, Moses. Moses is a shadow, a reflection, a preview of Jesus Messiah. Why? Because what, how does Moses finally get them out of Egypt? What's the last plague that Pharaoh says, I'm done. Get out of here. The Passover lamb when death entered and took the firstborn of all the Egyptians. It's the final scene. Jesus is that Passover. He's the the deliverer that breaks the bondage of slavery, which is sin. How are you going to get your sins forgiven? Let me back up to to Genesis. What caused the sin of Adam and Eve? What caused the death of Adam and Eve? I said it wrong. What caused the death of- why'd they die? Old age? They didn't die of old age. They died of what? They died from sin. Sin equals death. What would happen if you could deal with sin? If sin—if it's a mathematical equation—if sin equals death, then what would happen if you could erase sin? You would erase death. So how can you erase sin? How do you break the bondage of sin from God's perspective? Egypt is a picture of sin and bondage. How do you break the bondage? How did Moses, the deliverer, break the bondage so they can go to the promised land, so that death would pass over and not get you? How? How? The blood of the lamb. Jesus is all of those. He breaks the—he's the deliverer. He breaks the bondage of sin and death. He comes and picks you up, takes you through the wilderness, takes you to the promised land. He is the revelation of the Passover lamb. God's upper story plan is to redeem the world from slavery and sin by the perfect lamb. But here's the deal. Are you ready? You must leave Egypt. You must leave Egypt. You cannot stay in Egypt. You cannot stay in Egypt when you meet the deliverer. That's why we talk this word repentance. Repentance is to turn away from sin. Turn away from Egypt. Get out of Egypt! You got to get out of Egypt to get into the wilderness, to get into the promised land. In in this lower story in Egypt, only one thing would make the death angel pass over your house. The blood of a spotless lamb. Only one thing can fix slavery and bondage today. The blood of the lamb. Let's go to the New Testament. By the way, New Testament also means new covenant. The word testament and covenant are interchangeable words. So, when I say New Testament, New Covenant, it's a new promise. In the New Testament, it says, How much more then will the blood of Christ... Not not the blood that you had to put over a door of your house. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, there's the Holy Spirit, offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. We have, you know what Hebrews tells us? We have so many better promises than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What God offered the church in our age is so much better than what they had. Understand that? It's great. And the Hebrew says, we have more precious promises. How much more then will the blood of Christ save us from sin and death than the blood of an animal spread over your door, a Passover, a Yom Kippur event year after year in a temple. Does this help you understand why John the Baptist said this when Jesus came to be baptized in the Jordan River. The next day, John 1.29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why did he? Why did John, a man, look at Jesus walking toward him and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the blood of that went over the door in Egypt, that took them out of slavery, and took them to the promised land. Jesus is the blood, the spotless lamb that takes away the sins of the world. There's Egypt, there's bondage, and uh, of the whole world. Do you ever feel unqualified? Let's go back to the original idea, him picking Abraham. Do you ever feel unqualified for the calling God has placed in your life? Join the club. This club is full of Abrahams. He's too old. Right? He's a hundred years old. I am studying today. Again, that's where I was at in my study. He's a hundred years old. (laughs) It's crazy. It's crazy. Why does he pick somebody a hundred years old? I mean, aren't there any young people out here? He picks a guy a hundred years old to have Isaac. Why? so that Abraham wouldn't be able to boast. He could only be God. And then Jacob, if you, we're, we don't have time to go through it, but Jacob and Esau, that story that they go through, why does he pick Jacob? Jacob's a deceiver, right? He's a deceiver. Moses, Mo, 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 Moses says, I don't speak well. So when God calls him, he says, I can't talk. And if God appeared to you in a bush, you wouldn't be able to talk either. <laughs> and I've already used them as an example. With all of the educated people in Jerusalem, in the black robes and the fancy degrees, why in the world did he go to Galilee? You know what Galilee was? I, I never knew this until I got this really going to Israel and studying that, you know, Galilee, Nazareth, that northern region, you know what they are to Jerusalem people? Country folks. You know what they are? They're like being from Birdie, which is where I'm from. You remember when he calls, is it Nathaniel? he calls and he says, nothing good ever comes from Nazareth. Nothing. It's like saying, those are uneducated, stupid people. And you know what? When Jesus started picking people that would change the world, he took the uneducated, stupid people and said, I will radically transform your heart. I will place my spirit in you, and I will carry out my will, and no one will stop it." Exactly to the day it will all happen, and he did. You feel unqualified? Good. That's when he does his best work, Luke 10, 21. At that time, Jesus- full of joy said full of joy through the holy spirit said this to his father i praise you father lord of heaven and earth because you have hidden these things from the wise and you've hidden it from the educated learned people and you revealed it to your little children yes father this was your good pleasure do you see how god thinks He chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, the weak things of the world to to make the strong things irrelevant so that no one would ever boast. Here we go. Next chapter, number five. You're going to have new commands and you're going to have a new covenant. A new law is coming. The next time you pass through the intersection of 127 and 44— I want you to think about this question. What makes that intersection work? What makes it safe to travel through that intersection? Now some of you are going to say, it ain't safe. (laughs) Uh, It's the one that- I guess it's the most dangerous intersection in Anderson County. But let's, let's focus on something. This is really important to understand where we're going next. In chapter number five, God brings a new law to town. He's bringing a new law to planet Earth. The law in that intersection of 127 and 44 makes it possible for me to go through there without being killed, most of the time. Why does the law do it? The law has determined several factors. Red means stop, green means go, yellow means hit the gas. I hate you' all right, y'all done it too. <laughs> Run for your life is what yellow means. But really, what does it mean? There's a controlled environment that makes a deadly situation plausible. It's a, it's, it only is it the law that makes that, that intersection work. It's the law. If people stop disobe- start disobeying the law, guess what? That intersection won't work. The law makes the intersection work. Are you with me? You got to get that to get this next part. The truth is this. Inside of all of us is a nature that resists authority. There is something inside of us that thinks that everybody else ought to obey the law, but I've got more flexibility, right? There's something in us. This nature has its origin in the garden of eden satan the adversary and has corrupted the entire kingdom of men all of us have this problem so sin and rebellion against the will of god sin and rebellion against the laws of god is what started all this what was it don't eat that tree right It has caused a separation to come between God and his ultimate creation. So I want you to think about this. I'm trying to make this where you can visualize something. God lived with Adam and Eve in the garden. They could intersect each other without any trouble. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. They could cross paths. Everything was fine. No wrecks. Everything's fine. Why? Because there was a law. There's a law in the garden. Everything you are free to do except one. There's a law. When the law was broken, the intersection stopped functioning. Adam, you must leave. You cannot intersect with me anymore in the garden. You will have to, because the law is what made you and I be able to cross paths. And we can't cross paths. He sets up a guard at the gate. Adam's on the outside looking in. Stay with me. We found out in Genesis 3 that God was going to do whatever it took to get us back, get us back. He wants us back into his presence. So Moses, we're going back to Moses. Moses is going to be, he's going to receive the law. So there was a law in the garden, right? Not a lot of laws between Moses and um, the garden. So here comes God, and he meets with Moses, and what's he give him? He gives him the law. It's it's 10 commandments and 613 rules. 10 commandments and 613 do's and don'ts. That's far more complicated than one law in the garden. Don't eat the tree. It's gotten way more complicated. Why do you think... Why do you think he's going to give Moses a law on Mount Sinai? He wants to come and live among his people again. But the intersection will be crowded, and there's not just two people in the garden. And for God to live with his people, and them to be able to cross paths on the earth, he needs to set up some laws. It's a revelation of God's incredible plan to come and live among His people. God was going to reveal to Moses on Mount Sinai His plan to come down and dwell among, in in the presence of all the people that He was gathering as a great nation. He promised an oath to Abraham 500 years earlier. So how will this intersection be made safe? Deuteronomy 7-6. For you, Moses and Israel, are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. God picked Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he's going to create the sons and daughters of God, his treasured possession. So I'm going to ask you again. If God's going to come down now and live among His people, He's going to come down and live among His people, how's it going to work? They're going to intersect each other. How's it going to work? The law. God told Moses that there were three things that must take place for God to come down and dwell among His people. Now this is the simple version, okay? Three people. Number one, laws would have to be established as to how Israel would treat God and treat each other. If you want me to come live among you, I'm going to have to make a law, some laws about how you'll treat God and how you'll treat each other. Number two, God will need an appropriate place to stay when he comes down. Y'all with me? Number three, the sin of Israel must be atoned for, must be paid for before he would enter their presence. So, what's number one? Well, number one, laws. The Ten Commandments are rules for human behavior. They are laws that allow the intersection to function without us crashing into each other. Exodus 20. Now, I'm not going to go through all of them. You can read them. Hopefully, you know what they are. I do want to point out something, have you ever noticed that the first two, are specifically about idolatry. No other gods but me. But really, the point I want to make right now about the intersection is this the first four are how we are to respond to Him, the next six are how we're supposed to respond to each other. You ever see it like that? So, how's the intersection going to work with God moving down here? Laws have to be put in place. The first four laws are, this is how you're going to treat me. And the next six is, this is how you're going to treat each other. If we don't want to crash into each other in the intersection of life, you're going to have to understand, you got to follow my laws. My laws make it possible for us to live together again. The law, it's how to navigate the intersection. But I told you there were three things. Number two, God will need an appropriate place to stay when He comes down. Where's He going to live? He's going to come down and live. Exodus 25, verse 8. Then have them make a sanctuary for me. This is God talking to Moses. Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Now, I need to make sure, y'all have given me that look. Were you aware that, This was new, that from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, God's presence, he would send angels, stuff would happen like momentary, but his presence was not upon the earth. he's, He's not, this is the first time that he gives anybody the opportunity to experience his presence, not individually, but as a people. As a people, I'll come live among you, your whole people. Now, when this happens, there's two million of them. Okay, it's two million people men, women, children. I'm gonna, I I wanna come live with you all. There's gotta be laws. And number two, Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. In other words, who designed it? Did Moses and some guys get together and say, let's make a place for God? No, 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 no. Bad idea. God says, I'll I'll tell you what it'll take for me to come down and live with you. Make it like that. And what was it? Come on, what was it? It It's what we call the tabernacle. It was a tent, the tent of meetings. Why was it called the tent of meetings? Because it would be the place that man would meet with God. Laws had to be in place before he can come. A, a sanctuary has to be in place, the tabernacle. Now, eventually, when they get to a Jerusalem years later, it would be a permanent building, the temple. What's the third thing? Sin must be atoned for. Somebody's got to pay the sin debt. What? That thing that happened with Adam and Eve, and they had to leave... It's still happening. Somebody's got to pay for this. Exodus twenty nine verse ten: Bring the bull to the front of the tent of meeting, and Aaron and his sons, they're the high priests, shall lay their hands on the bull's head and slaughter it in the Lord's presence. Anybody listening? Why does he want them to slaughter the bull in the Lord while he's watching? Slaughtered in the Lord's presence at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Take some of the bull's blood and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And pour out the rest of it on the base of the altar. Then take all the fat around the inner parts and covering of the liver and both kidneys with the fat on them. And burn them on the altar. But burn the bull's flesh and its hide and its offal outside the camp. It is a sin offering. God said, that will atone those three things. You're going to have the laws, you're going to have to build me a proper place, and you're going to have to pay the sin debt, and I'll come live with you. So let me ask you a question. Everything so far has been, I've been saying, Messiah, 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 Messiah. Do you see it? Do you know what that tabernacle had in it? Let me just go through that real quick. The tabernacle was exactly as God had told Moses. The tabernacle it had a fence and had a gate, but it only had one gate. You know there was only one way to get into the tabernacle? And it always faced east. The tabernacle only could face east, and the kador would always be to the east. Why? Can you see Jesus? Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. He says, I am the gate. I am the door. So we see Jesus. What about when you walk in the gate? As soon as you walk in the the door, the gateway to the tabernacle, you'll see a bronze altar. It's where they burnt the offerings. Blood must be spilled before you could go any further. Any further means the further you go through the gate, the closer you get to the presence of God. He's behind the curtain. But the first thing you face when you come in the gate is the bronze altar. What's it for? It's the shedding of blood. It's the sacrifice. It's where they would put the bull and burn the offering, the blood. Is that Jesus? He's the Passover lamb. It's His blood that allows you to proceed further into the presence of God. What's the third thing? On the right-hand side, you'll see a bronze laver. A labor. It's like this container that holds water. It's for the priest to wash with. It's the cleansing. It's the picture of spiritual baptism. What is it that, that Jesus, he's the, he, he's the one that washes our sins away. He's the one that cleanses us. So you get into the holy place, not the most holy place. You open the holy place and you've got the lampstand. Do you see Jesus? A lampstand. He says, I'm the light of the world. What a coincidence. And then you see the table of showbread. And you see Jesus, he says, I'm the bread, the manna that came. I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. And then you see the altar of incense, the altar of incense, which represents the prayers of the saint, the prayers that go up to God. You know, the Bible says that Jesus intercedes between us and God, that he prays, intercedes for us. Jesus, 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 Jesus. What's it all revealing? the Messiah. But it gets even bigger. There's a veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. Do you know what happened when Jesus is on the cross? He cries out in a loud loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he breathed his last, the veil of the Jerusalem temple. By that time, it's not a tabernacle. It's not a tent. It's a real temple. It's a big building with a very thick curtain. And that curtain tears from the top to the bottom. Doing what? The Passover lamb has made a way for you to get to God. (laughs) He made a way for you to get to God. You'll never get to God except through Him. He is the veil. There's no other way. And inside that curtain of the most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant. It's the mercy seat. Jesus, is He the mercy seat? It is His mercy that has opened that curtain. There was two cherubim over the mercy seat. But really what I want you to get out of the ark is this. It's the throne of God. It's his throne. One of these days, Jesus is gonna come back. He's gonna go into Jerusalem and he's gonna take his seat on David's throne and he will assume control of everything. All power, dominion, and authority will belong to him. It is the throne of God. Inside the ark, that chest, were three articles, three articles. Can you name them? Aaron's staff, what? The law, the stone tablets, and a jar of manna, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The most amazing one is Aaron's staff. Aaron's staff is a stick, a dead stick that budded and produced almonds. That that was the original Aaron. That's why they put it in there. What? How is Jesus a stick? On the cross, a wooden cross, he dies. A dead stick that came to life and bore fruit. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. What's the other thing? The stone tablets. Jesus is the law of Moses. He is the law. And the last thing is manna. He's the bread of life. If there's a single point I would like for everybody to get out of these 31 sessions that are crammed in 13 weeks is Jesus, 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 Jesus. The entire Bible reveals one name, Jesus. All of this is so God could come down and be with him. All of these things that I'm describing to you so that God could come down and we could have an intersection with him. Hebrews 8.5, they serve as a sanctuary. They serve at the sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that everything, that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. That's Moses. Moses told them, there's going to be one come way greater than me, and you must, when he comes, you must listen to him. Moses is pointing to Jesus' future arrival. All of this so that God would come down and dwell among his treasured possessions. When it was time to move from the mountain toward the promised land. They've gotten the law, they've gotten all the instructions, how God can come and live among them. Exodus 33, Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not yet let them, you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I might know you and continue to find your favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you, Moses, by name. And then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, Moses. No one may see me and live. And then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft. In the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by, and then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Let me ask you a question Does anybody think you can navigate the intersection between God and man without this man Jesus? He is the law, he is everything. Final chapter the wanderings. We've gone from creation to Abraham to Joseph, the deliverance, the law, the new covenant. Now they're going to wander in the wilderness. Moses is going to take them toward the promised land. Have you ever missed an off-ramp when you're out driving down the road, had to travel a great distance to turn around and get where you wanted to go? If I'd have just got that off-ramp, I missed it, now I've got over 100 miles to turn around and get to the next place. The journey from Mount Sinai to the promised land should have taken only a month or two. One one part in the Bible says it should have taken 11 days. But it ends up taking 40 years. It took 240 times longer than it needed to. Wow. So close and yet so far. For many people, this will be their story as it was the children of Israel. Let me put it like this. Interesting to me that I covered some of this last Sunday. Many will die in the wilderness just outside the promised land. So close. Many will die in the wilderness this close to the promised land. The children of Israel spent about a year in the area near Mount Sinai building the tabernacle, establishing the priesthood. Learning how to live in this new life as the children of God under the law and His presence and all of that. Remember they had spent their entire life in the land of Egypt. They had been—they never knew what it was not to be a slave. Their daddy was a slave. Their granddaddy was a slave. That's all they knew was slavery. All they knew was bondage. And now their freedom has brought some difficulties which ignite the rabble. Be careful when you ignite the rabble. Numbers 11 verse 1, now the people complained about their hardship in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them in his anger was aroused, then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. And when the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So that place was called Taborah because the fire from the Lord had burned among them. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. Not a vegetarian in the crowd. If only we had meat to eat. We remember fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. You know what manna was? God's bread of heaven. Moses becomes stressed out at all the complaining and whining, and God sends meat. Oh, man, did he send meat. Verse 18, tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. How many of them are there? Two million. That's the same number it looks like when you make Thanksgiving dinner at your house. Two million. How is he going to give them meat? The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat. We were better off in Egypt. Can you imagine being God and hearing that? That breaks my heart. They had never known anything but bondage. And God has come specifically to bring them and save them. And what did they say? We were better off in Egypt. Oh, rebel heart. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five or 10 or 20 days, but for the whole month until it comes out of your nostrils. You ever had quail come out of your nose? It's not fun. And you're going to loathe it because you have rejected the Lord who is among you. You see, God solved the real problem. It's not about your dietary condition. You have rejected the one leading you to the promised land. And have wailed against him saying, we did, why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, here I am among 600,000 men on foot. So some of you are wondering, where do you keep getting that 2 million number? There were 600,000 men above the age of 20. Do the math. Count the women and the children and what you come up with. I will, and we're here, I am with 600,000 men on foot, and you say, I'll give them meat to eat for a whole month. Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? And the Lord answered Moses, is the Lord's arm too short, Moses? You will now see whether or not what I say will come true for you. Did you catch it? Why did we ever leave Egypt? Do you think they're going to? Do you think they're getting the upper story of God? They're, they're living in the lower story, and sometimes the lower story is hard. But you got to make the lower story understandable. You got to know that it really is about the upper story. It's what He's doing up there. Every time I read this story, I feel sorry for Moses, because I'm thinking, you know what? He did not apply for this job. He got called. Even Moses has doubts about the limits of God's power in the midst of this stressful calling. So, be careful when you wail. Be careful when you whine about something. You might get it. And remember, everybody remember when I read this next part. They are this close to the promised land. This close. And many of them, are you listening? Many of them are going to die in the wilderness just outside the promised land. This close. Now, a wind went up, went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It brought them down all around the camp to about three feet above the ground, as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that day and night, and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than 10 homers. I looked at the equivalency today 10 homers is 50 bushels. That's a lot of birds. And then they spread them out all around the camp, but while the meat was still between their teeth, and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people, and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore, the place was called Kibrath Adafah, because there they buried the people. Is anybody listen They buried the people who craved other food. They died in the wilderness just outside the promised land. The scene describes the heart condition of man when it comes to a relationship with God. Even Moses' brother and sister eventually began to complain against Moses. And by the way, don't look down on these newly freed slaves, for this heart condition still exists in everybody, all of us today. Finally, this huge mass of people reached the Jordan River, and they chose 12 men to spy out their destination land. Canaan, the land that flows with milk and honey. The promised land, the same topic I covered this past Sunday. It's called the promised land because God started this story some 650 years earlier with a promise to a man named Abraham. Twelve spies will spend 40 days checking out their new home, and wow, was it awesome, except for one problem. Giants live there. Verse 38. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Those were giants, by the way. We saw the Nephilim, another group of giants there. The descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. Go down to verse 30. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. That was it. God used their own words and actions against them. One year of wandering in the wilderness for every day you spend spying out the land that I promised to give you. I've learned a valuable lesson in my life. It's not just about the destination. It's about how you look at the journey itself. Numbers 26. The total number of men of Israel was 601,730. Two people made it. Does that sound positive to y'all? Do we serve a different God than the God of Moses? No. 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 This sobers me. 601,728 didn't make it. They died in the wilderness just outside the promised land. Recalculating. I used to have a GPS in my car that that just wore me out. Every time I'd put something in, I'd take another turn, and this woman's voice would say, recalculating, recalculating. I went somewhere with Chris Harrod a few weeks ago. We were traveling to Cincinnati. And he got so sick of that woman's voice that he he got another voice that's a army sergeant major voice. It says, recalculating. It hollers at you. You're afraid to question him. (laughs) Let's make something clear. The grasshopper complex still exists today. They said that we can't take it because we look like grasshoppers compared to the task that God has given us. God promised them the land, and they died in the wilderness and never got the land, never got the promise. The grasshopper complex is real. Follow the GPS, God's positioning sensor, God's positioning sensor. Trust Him. You won't know how to get to the promised land without His divine GPS. Jesus is God's GPS. Right now, each of us are on a trip, and in some ways, similar to the children of Israel. We've been set free from the bondage by our deliverer, Jesus. But I've got to tell you, everybody listen to me, it's the last word. Get out of Egypt, and don't look back. Egypt is a picture of sin that leads to death. Get out of Egypt. That's repentance. When you turn around and you face God, and you turn your back on Egypt. And you start walking and face the giants. Just face them. God's promises are sufficient. He told us to follow Him through the wilderness, and He'll get us to the promised land. Matthew 7, 14. Jesus says, small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. Why do you think He said that? Because 601,728 people didn't make it. Our deliverer will come to set us free. I believe in the soon return of Christ. And I believe he's trying everything right now to make the bride ready. And for the most part, the bride is not ready. She is distracted. The events in the Middle East, this this thing in Turkey and this thing in Syria, just another sign. I heard this afternoon 12,000 people died in an earthquake. This afternoon there was an earthquake in northern Israel. There's earthquakes everywhere. Yes, there are. And all of them are signs leading up to one giant great event that will culminate when Jesus comes back for His church. And I just keep seeing that number, 601,728 people were just this close to the promised Land. And what kept them out is they did not believe and trust in God's Word. It's yours. It's yours. By the Passover lamb, it's yours. It's yours. The Promised Land is ours. I hope you're ready. Sammy convicted me before I started tonight. He said, last week you didn't offer an invitation. So tonight, I'm not going to do anything fancy, but I'm going to stay up here after everything is over. I'll offer you an invitation. I don't know what this series does to you. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing to you. But I'll just ask you this question. If Jesus comes tonight, he comes tomorrow morning for his bride to take them to the promised land. Are you, are you going? If your answer is, I don't know, you'll remain here. You'll remain here. Faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you cannot see. Sure and certain is not, I don't know. It's not faith in me. It's not faith in my, my abilities or something. It's faith that He is sufficiently able to keep His promise. And the blood of the Lamb has cleansed me from sin. And death will pass over me. And so will the tribulation. It's a serious time. It's not time for games. It's time for people to be sincere in their faith. Because there was only two people out of that entire horde of men that went into the promised land. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb that made a way for us to get out of Egypt. None of us can get out of Egypt. But the blood of the Lamb's opened up this door. The veil's been torn. We can access you. We can live in the intersection of your presence because of Jesus. Mother, open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to obey. If there's anyone here tonight that needs to make a decision about you, may they do so now before it's too late. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.